0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And welcome to Boxing Day. It is uh, traditionally Boxing Day. Uh, if, if, if you've ever wondered about this, why do we call it Boxing Day? Uh, as, as I was a kid, I remember it would always especially be featured on the Canadian calendar. Mm-hmm. And I always assumed, well, this is when I guess you box things back up. Maybe you're not supposed to have all these gifts. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, my understanding, though, is that it's tied in with the idea of this being a, a day when you would traditionally give a box, you would give a gift uh, to um, uh, you know to, to various um, uh, delivery people and whatnot. So oh, it's, a, it's okay. another day about giving. Okay, but you could also be inclined to make the mistake that our mailbot Carney has made. Uh, he knows that it is Boxing Day. He um, he knows that boxing is a physical combat sport in which humans punch each other uh, generally in the head region with uh, with large Gloves on, and then of course he has the Rock'em Sock'em robot example to go by, and right. so so he's become incredibly aggressive. Yes, incredibly so. I mean, lucky he's wearing the luckily he's wearing the gloves because otherwise Carney's hands are metal. But uh, that's what we're having to put up with today. Still, he has, his primary programming is to deliver listener mail to us, and he is still doing it, uh, granted, with a little more punch than usual. Right. We'll just have to dodge the fists of fury every time we retrieve one. Right. Well, you know, since it's so close to Christmas, since Christmas is still in the air, uh, dissipating in the air around us, we should probably kick off with some Christmas holiday related listener mail before we get into more general listener mail.
0: Okay, let's get ready to rumble. Here's the first message. This comes from Corbin. It's about our episode Is Santa a God? Corbin says, hey, Robin, Joe, your discussion about minimally counterintuitive narratives brought to mind one of my all-time favorite sci-fi series, Dune. Oh, excellent. I haven't listened to all your podcasts, my sincerest apologies, but somehow I feel like you're familiar with the books. <laughs> How little you know, Corbin. Yes. Um. I found it interesting that Frank Herbert, when depicting Leto II as a god emperor, began his transformation, uh, remaining primarily humanoid and gradually over time became more worm. So this is the transformation of a person into a giant sandworm. Right.
1: If, if you only know Dune from the films, you haven't really seen this yet. I think the the TV miniseries is about as far into the books uh, as, as, as anyone has
0: visually dared go. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Corbin continues however even till his last day R.I.P. he maintained his human face despite the fact that his brain was a distributed collective nervous system that's right it's an interesting thought that Frank Herbert did this as an illustration not only to the readers but also to the characters in the universe that Leto II was at one point a human and therefore more easy to anthropomorphize Leto's goal was after all to rapidly spread his religion across an entire universe albeit through more nefarious Means, I feel it's also easier to say, yeah, we worship a giant worm, but he used to be a human. He still has a human face. Then, yeah, we worship a giant worm with a gullet filled with rows upon rows of teeth. Uh, <laughs> we won't get into the Fremen and how their worship of Shai Halud differs fundamentally. Really enjoy listening and typing this email really felt like a good way to create some discussion, uh, even just with myself, about something I thought was a very interesting concept applied to someone fundamentally more badass than a fat man in red PJs. Regards, Corbin. (laughs) Well, I
1: mean, you could combine them, right? And you have Santa Santa Leto Uh uh, arriving. But uh, no, I yeah, obviously I love this email because it ties in with the, the, the episode, but <laughs> the also jolly. drags
0: Dune into the whole uh, picture. <laughs> I like how Corbin's not sure whether we've read Dune or not; <laughs> thinks maybe we have. So we,
1: we definitely we, we have, of course, uh, and we're we're fans. We did a, a couple of episodes years back mm-hmm. about the science of Dune, the technology of Dune. Yeah. we didn't talk about everything in the. First book, or certainly the the the, the, uh, the, the series. Mm-hmm. We talked about a few things. We talked about still suit. We talked about sandworm biology. We even got into consideration of the uh, the face dancers mm-hmm. and uh, and how that might work based on uh, some folks' interpretations. Yeah,
0: somebody was recently asking us to do an episode on Golas. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, wait, is that the same as face dancers or different?
1: Different, different. Some, okay, made, yeah,
0: uh, made by the same people. Okay. Um, Uh, So, yeah, maybe we can come back and do Dune Part 3 sometime in the future. I think so. I think basically
1: we would want to – we'd need to couch the first part of it in something familiar, something that would tie into the first movie, uh, especially the first book and movie, especially since we're getting a new uh, film adaptation coming up in 2020. So, yeah, we definitely, definitely need to do it and there's plenty
0: to talk about. Uh, Do you want to do one more quick one about uh, whether or not Santa counts as a god before we move on? Let's do it. This comes from Clarence. Uh, Clarence says, hey, guys, my name's Clarence. This is my first time writing, although I've been listening for a few years now. Um, Honestly, hoping to get this read in the next uh, Listener Mail episode. Well, here you go, Clarence. Uh, Clarence says, anyway, just listened to the episode entitled Is Santa a God Part 1? Interesting. And I – oh, and Clarence appreciated the warning we put in at the beginning of the episode. Maybe Clarence listens with – some kids. But as I was listening, I thought about something few people know about and even fewer still remember. Santa is actually one of the most powerful entities in the Marvel Comics universe. Ah. It has been alluded to in a few issues I've read over the years. Most recently, I can remember in Spider-Man Deadpool issue number 12. Food for thought. (laughs) I'd like to know what you guys think of Santa as a Marvel character, Clarence.
1: Well... Uh, obviously I'm in favor uh, of this, and uh, I think he absolutely needs to be incorporated into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, it's a shame that he, did, he wasn't in there in that uh, big you know,
0: battle against Thanos. Well, I think he'd be fighting on the side of Thanos, right? No. Is Thanos the one that wants everybody to be good boys and girls? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I think he's more about— I mean, about, I haven't seen them. He's more I about don't.
1: overpopulation, really. Oh, okay, yeah. really? Uh, I,
0: I don't know the whole Thanos thing.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's basically it. In the films, it's it's a little different. In the the comics, as I recall, the comics is more about love. Like he's in love with uh, Death's daughter or something, mm-hmm. or Death herself. I'm I'm a little hazy oh, he's on... trying
0: to impress her by like killing everybody. Yeah, oh, that sort okay. of thing.
1: But no, I would love for Santa to, to pop up because um, there's so many – every every matchup, every team up is great. Like you could have Santa team up with Blade mm-hmm. to go after uh, Christmas Nosferatus. Uh, that would be good. Yeah, that would be good. Um,
0: well, this fits into our discussion of uh, is Santa more Superman or is he more Batman?
1: Yeah, this, this is a good question. I guess in the Marvel Cinematic – in the Marvel Universe, he is more Superman it sounds like. Yes. I wonder if it's different in D.C. Does D.C. also have uh, an incarnation of Santa? And if so, is it more Batman-esque? I would love to know. All right. Here is another holiday-related bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Martin. Martin writes in and says, Dear Robert and Joe, Thank you for the very interesting show on Krampus. Although I am from Austria, I've never given this tradition any second thought. Krampus was just a natural part of the folklore I was brought up with. Same as Christmas and the Easter Bunny. On St. Nicholas's Eve, our parents filled our stockings with sweets and my father rattled some iron chains pretending to chase away Krampus. It was exciting for us kids picturing my father fending off some goat demon. (laughs) Anyway, as I grew older, I realized that Krampus was not real and kept him as a childhood memory, again, same as the Easter Bunny. One thing that came to my mind while listening to your podcast is the role that the Krampus actors take on. You focused on the effects Krampus has on children, but I think it also has some effect on the Krampus impersonator. Hmm. Not having any studies to back this up, I believe that Krampus also serves as some kind of outlet, a controlled and socially acceptable way for grown men to act out violent acts and let go of themselves in a cathartic way. I was wondering if you came across such an explanation while researching. Thanks again for your wonderful show. Kind regards, Martin and he has a PS, but let's talk about... what he just said before we get to the PS.
0: Uh, Well, that didn't come up with uh, respect to anything specifically about Krampus. But we absolutely have looked at uh, studies before that, at least in some cases, show that people have um, reduced inhibitions when their identity is hidden. So there have been like studies, for example, finding that um, people are more willing to march around in public with a sign that says something embarrassing if their identity is hidden. That's obviously, you know, that's not very— Surprising, but I guess one thing that's interesting is they're more willing to do that, even probably if they're around people that you know might not recognize them personally. Right? There's something about having your identity hidden, putting on the mask, putting on the costume that allows you to shed some of the normal barriers to behavior that that would be inhibiting you.
1: Yeah, and I think there's also a link to um, to animism uh, because you see various examples of practices around the world in which someone wears the fur or the horn or the skull of or even just the the painted or tattoo likeness of the beast and then as a part of a ritual, becomes the beast to some extent, and it sort of enables a more, um, you know, a wilder um, uh, acting out. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's definite connection uh, to that as well in, yeah. in the uh, the Krampus tradition.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. The the putting on the costume it removes, but it also adds. Yeah. You know, it it takes away some of your natural personality and inhibitions, and it adds to. You know, you get to take on the qualities of this character,
1: right? And it's um, in, and certainly in terms of it being a uh, you know this outlet and being a um, um you know this uh, you know, release valve and to a certain extent. Well, I mean, we also see examples from I think even this year there were a couple of news stories about some perhaps overly rowdy or even um, uh, offensive Krampus impersonators in a mm-hmm. few uh, uh, cities, and I mean that kind of goes. I think to the nature of what this is doing, it's it's like having an, an exhaust valve on, say, a, a you know a, a boiler, right? If it's working properly, it's letting just enough steam out to keep the the tank from exploding, right? Mm. But uh, for some, it could also be like an excuse to be bad, right? Uh, so it's. Uh, it's one of those uh, those aspects of uh, of culture that I guess you, you want the balance to be just right, yeah you don 't want your Krampuses rampaging through the city, actually terrorizing people, but on the other hand, if you have a culture without the Krampus, if the Krampus cannot actually be unleashed uh, at this part of the year, then what does that mean you get like a little more Krampus in every day uh, that doesn't sound good either. Keep Krampus in christmas there 's your <laughs> bumper sticker.
0: Okay, I think maybe we're going to get away from Christmas. Oh, no, no. We have one more bit. We have the PS. Oh, sorry. So Martin also
1: shares this. Uh, PS, if you like weird traditions, I bet you're into Schappen. That's S-C-H-A-P-P-E-N. It's a custom prevalent in the southern parts of Austria where small children go from door to door on the 28th of December and whip the grown-up's buttocks with a rod. Good, very good. And he includes a, a link to a Wikipedia page about this, but it is a German-only page. Uh, so it, it leads me to suspect that uh, Schopen is not properly appreciated or known outside of um, uh, you know German-speaking cultures.
0: Oh, this is like uh, making the fool the pope and like the boy king stuff. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. These kind of reversals are good. They should definitely involve uh, children inflicting corporal punishment on adults. <laughs> <laughs> All right. OK, uh, so now we are going to get away from Christmas for a bit, but we'll come back to some holiday theme stuff I think later in the episode. So this one is in response to the episode we did, uh, I Drink Your Blood Type, where Robert and I were talking about uh, uh, vampires and blood types, the, the real science of blood types some pseudoscience about blood types and personality and all that. And this comes from Maya. Maya says, hey, guys, I love your podcast. I've been listening to it for a while now. In October, I listened to your episode on vampires and blood types, and I remember you questioning why a vampire might ask about recent dental work. This came up on some TV show. Oh,
1: this was an episode of Tales from the Crypt, an episode that starred, uh, I believe, Malcolm McDowell, or was it Roddy McDowell? One of the two McDowell's
0: for sure. Um, I thought I'd let you know that recent dental work is a risk factor for infective endocarditis where the heart valves become infected. When this happens, little flecks of bacteria flick off the valves and through the blood circulation, which would probably make the blood taste pretty gross, even to a vampire. I'm a medical student, and it's something we've been told in medical school a bunch of times. Thanks so much and love the podcast, Maya.
1: That is interesting. That gives me a new respect for that
0: episode. Yeah, I've, I've heard of this before, yeah, that like uh, dental work, I think some stuff from the mouth, I think maybe can get into the blood and then Mm. affect the heart. So definitely, if you're looking for blood to drink, uh, keep an eye out for the dental surgery.
1: All right, this next one comes to us from Michaela, and it is uh, in in reference to our episode on prototaxites. Hello, just listened to your prototaxites episode, and since you were talking about soil structure as well as fungi – uh, algae, liverworts, and lichen, I was a little surprised not to hear the mention of biocrusts. Biocrust being living soil aggregates of soil which uh, host communities of mosses, fungi, lichen, cyanobacteria, and other organisms uh, mainly in desert systems. Hmm. They're their own amazing little ecosystems and keep ground from blowing away and by creating mats of filamentous cyanobacteria, so possibly the ancient world might have been a bit crusty. <laughs> Biocrust are super underappreciated, except by the people who passionately study them, including my master's advisor, who is, uh, and then there's a a Twitter address here. It is at Dryland Algae, that's D-R-Y-L-A-N-D-A-L-G-A-E, on Twitter. I thought you guys might be interested. Anyway, as a future astrobiologist and lover of all things
0: strange, I adore the show. Keep it weird, Michaela. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Michaela. That's interesting. I didn't know much about that. So uh, maybe we'll come back to that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We got one message from Brett. It actually wasn't much of a message. It was. Uh, it seemed to be in response to the uh, Monstrosity Cuteness rerun we did and the Uncanny Valley rerun we did. Um, it was a link to uh, stuff about the new Sonic movie, Sonic uh. the Hedgehog, where they, they had to redo the animation on Sonic the Hedgehog because when they first released the trailer, people were just horrified by the way Sonic looked. And I, I got to admit – his eyes were small, and it, he had human teeth. And there's something wrong with human teeth on a non-human animal, right? Uh, it's like that fish that's got teeth that look too human, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I for one, I, I didn't really have a dog in this hunt. Um, I can't say I was particularly excited about a Sonic movie. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't really turned off by this image, and uh, even I'll admit that the the new version. Does look a lot more like the Sonic character that I did enjoy yeah. playing. Big uh, Eyes, yeah. yeah. Big Eyes looks more like the character, and I enjoyed the character in the games back then. But, uh, you know, by and large, I feel like this is this was the internet blowing things out of proportion. And, uh, and the internet is, of course, the domain of Dr. Robotnik. Uh, that is, it's exactly the kind of system he would inflict on the world. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I have suspicions about the, the the ultimate motivations
0: behind the outrage here. Wait a minute, I'm not sure I understand. Like, you think people were not actually horrified by the appearance of the original Sonic? I just, I don't know. I mean, he,
1: it doesn't look that weird. I mean, it looks like, oh man, a CGI it creature. Weird to me. But
0: the improvement just looks more like a cartoon. Uh, Well, I will say the original looked more unique. The new one just looks more like every other cartoon character. But I guess there's a reason cartoon characters look like that. You know, they're – tailored to look kind of like cute and approachable instead of like strange and uh and unsettling why does it look like
1: sonic is holding the one ring in this photo here
0: well i think because sonic the hedgehog collects golden rings oh
1: that's right so it's not the one ring that's only going to get him into trouble if he winds up in middle earth
0: okay let's move on to the next thing uh we got a couple of messages about our ship of theseus uh uh vault episode this comes from brett i don't I think it's the same Brett as the other message somehow. This is Um, Brett who's a chemist. Yeah, this is Brett who's a chemist. Brett says, hello, gentlemen. Great episode. Glad you looked at the premise from multiple directions. My two cents, being a chemist, I work with very sensitive instrumentation like an HPLC. I'm sure you'll look it up if you've not heard of it before. Uh, Yeah, it's a high-performance liquid chromatography uh, machine. It's a method that's used to – analyze the chemical constituents of a sample. So you put in a sample of something, it will separate out the chemicals and tell you how much of each one there is and stuff. Okay. Uh, So uh, Brett says, uh, I also do maintenance on the instruments I use. Being a GMP facility, and I think that's good manufacturing practices, uh, just like having high standards, uh, uh, any changes to the instrument must be documented and also validated. Well, what do I mean by this? We expect the instrument to reproduce the exact same results every time we use it. Therefore, any changes to the instrument must not affect the instrument's performance. Now, over the life of an HPLC, capillaries, frits, pumps, etc. do get changed. It is the same instrument, but if it does not produce the same results, we have to figure out why and make the proper adjustments in order to get it back to where it used to be. In this sense, the instrument is not the same anymore because of its sensitivity. Which leads me to ask, if a ship has been refurbished – so if, you know, you go with the original thought experiment, you mm-hmm. replace all the pieces of ship. Is it the idea of what the ship has accomplished that we humans hold on to? The ship still performs the same task as before. But what it has been through is in the mind of those who have used it. We could look at a replica of the ship, but it would not conjure up the same thoughts and emotions as someone who used it at sea, for example. It seems a physical object can change, but the perception we cast upon an object can change, leading to how stories are told about it. Uh, Wondering what you think about this and how the human mind likes to cast its perceptions into this world to make us feel reality. Keep up the good work. Love thinking about new topics your show introduces. Brett, chemist.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I mean, Brett really touches on a number of issues related to that. I mean, Uh because, yeah, the the, the story changes what the thing is, Mm -hmm. and uh, then the thing itself changes if you're refurbishing it. I mean, I guess a lot of it kind of swirls around the idea that as humans, we're often stuck on this idea of there being some level of permanency about anything, Uh like that there is a me that is me, and it's consistent. There's a uh, the ship is a ship, and it's a constant. That this story is constant. This belief, an idea, that even the truth is a is a is a constant thing that does
0: not change over time. Oh, well, this is an interesting idea that's being introduced here about um like the idea of whether something is the same instrument actually having like uh epistemic relevance, like it matters whether or not it was the same instrument uh, for whether or not you can count on it to be scientifically reliable.
1: Yeah, and in this example, I mean, it's easy. To make the case, because there's a specific thing that needs to be done with this device, mm-hmm. and it's measurable. You can, you can tell if it's out of whack, right? Yeah. But with the ship, the experience of the ship, the thing that the ship does is kind of—it's all over the place. Yeah, is it how it makes we—is it about how it makes us think about the ship? Is it about the stories told about the ship, about thinking back about what the ship once did? Um, you, know, you can't reduce that to a, a numerical value. I will say that one idea that comes to mind here, and this is because you and I were talking about Star Wars before we came in here, uh-huh. is uh, the idea of the original Star Wars trilogy. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, of course, George Lucas famously came back and refurbished parts of it. right? The parts of the- <laughs> Refurbished. Yeah, yeah, as if they were, you know, this is the ship of Theseus. And uh-huh. some of the boards were a little, and by some people's estimates, a little uh, um, out of date and needed to be replaced. And thus we had CGI elements added in or other- Slight changes, and from their point of view at the time you know we 're just we 're making this ship seaworthy we 're keeping it from sinking, mm-hmm. but for the, most of the rest of us we 're like no, that is not
0: <laughs> that 's not the ship we fell in love with you right. 're changing the ship The problem is people have been enjoying this perfectly well the way it is we 've got to go in there and add a bunch of stuff for the new era, yeah, so
1: in that, I think that example would hold up to a certain extent with what he 's talking about here. Mm-hmm. You changed the the ship in a way, you changed the film in a way that it altered the um, effect of experiencing it. You altered the thing that it does.
0: Yeah. Now, this, of course, uh, when it comes to works of art like film, this uh, becomes more difficult when you start thinking about like uh, preservation type efforts. Like, you know, say if you've got like old or damaged pieces of film and that's the only copy you have, like, uh, you know, there, there are obviously big questions about that. Like, should, you know, should you leave it as the damaged version or like to what extent to what lengths should you go in trying to, quote, restore it? I mean, uh, what what is the film at this point? Yeah. Is it the are you trying to get it to as close to what the people at the premiere of the film saw as possible or something like that? Or do you right. have another goal in mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, in many cases, when you're when you're dealing with with folks who grew up in the age of vhs Mm. that's where we saw the film for the first time you know maybe you saw it on the big screen but in many cases you saw it on vhs format on a on on a tv that was maybe not all that great Mm. and and i mean that's why so many people are nostalgic for the vhs era and for vhs effects and why you still have hardcore vhs enthusiasts who still utilize vhs technology to watch their films why uh, some releases will put it out on vhs as well to uh Uh, You know, to to meet that fan base.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm also thinking about special effects that don't stand up super well to high definition, but they look great on, you know, Mm -hmm. your crappy old version of the movie. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll
1: be right back. All right. We're back. so this next one comes to us from Landon, re- responding to our Cars, Bodies, and Minds episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, an automotive episode that we put out in October, which we did try and tie in a little bit to Halloween. But, uh, <laughs> but it was a really fun episode to do because we were yeah. talking about what, is it, what changes about the human experience when we're inside of a car? What is the psychological effect of driving, um, etc. So Landon writes in and says, hello, I really enjoyed this episode as I have had a similar theory about riding lawnmowers. I worked at a landscaping and lawn maintenance company for many years. We use both walk-behind lawn mowers as well as the ride-on type. A couple of the ride-on mowers are rather large. I started to notice that my fellow employees would drive them off of uh, curbs, run over trash, even run over rocks. Ooh. They would uh, not do this if they were pushing a mower, it made me think that when they are on the bigger machines, they feel bigger or maybe more powerful or entitled as if it does not matter what is in the path of this giant mower because it's so powerful. I definitely think there is something to that. The bigger the vehicle, the bigger the bravado. If you can imagine us lowly lawn maintenance workers with
0: bravado, thanks as always, Landon. Well, there's nothing lowly about lawn maintenance. I mean, that's real work. Yeah, and, it's essential. But I know what you mean about like uh, like the size of the mower and all that. Like um, – I feel like the most attuned I've ever been to what's in front of my mower is when I was using a non-motorized push mower. Oh, yeah. Do uh, you ever use one of those, Robert? Just the like, um, I mechanical. I think I might have tried blades? out
1: uh, my grandfather's at some point. Yeah, but I think that was the extent of it.
0: I used one for a few years. It, it was not the easiest. <laughs> yeah. I
1: want to say I wrote a, a How Stuff Works article about the, the push lawn mower, but uh-huh. maybe I'm mistaken. They're
0: neat gadgets. Like, there's something attractive about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like it's a step up there to the push motorized one. Uh, uh, where you're more indestructible. And then, oh. yeah, once you get on the seated one, you're just, you know, you're, you are a tank.
1: I felt entirely destructible every time I used a push lawnmower because generally all I could imagine is slipping on wet, freshly uh, oh, cut grass. Yes. and, like and sliding your leg under going under it. Under it. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. Like I yep. was
1: sure like that's how I'm going to go. I'm going to – that's how I'm going to die out in the middle of uh, of my parents' yard. I know uh, that feeling. Leg under the lawnmower. <laughs> But then, yeah, I I only ever did the one type of of seated lawnmower, and you know that did feel kind of powerful to a certain extent. You're roaring through the the, the lawn, the grass is disappearing underneath you, uh, and you know, being sliced away. You're leaving this uh, nice slick path of clean grass behind you.
0: It makes me wonder how different it is to use even like the next level up, like you're driving a big combine harvester. Yeah,
1: know? yeah, and this this also makes me wonder about even larger vehicles. Obviously, we have listeners out there who, who drive um, uh, large trucks for a living. Uh, we've heard from some of you, like, like, what's that like? What's that experience? Do you feel like you're, you have an enormous, un, unbeatable body? Um, has anyone out there ever uh, <laughs> driven a tank? I, I, now I, I want to know how this scales at every level. Likewise, maybe you, you're, you're a Shriner and you drive the little, uh, uh, what is it, the little <laughs> tricycle thing in the, the parade or some of those, like, microcars or something. What's that like? Well, a go-kart enthusiast, let me know. I, I, maybe you know, it's a different experience at every
0: possible level. Up until the ultimate vehicle transcendence, which is driving the doof wagon. <laughs> of course. All right. So we got a couple of messages related to our Devourer of Memories podcasts uh, that we did about uh, Planaria and the research of uh, James McConnell, the idea of memories existing outside the brain, uh, whether or not there's anything to that, the recent research on that. Uh, First of all, so in that episode, we talked about James McConnell who was born in a town in Oklahoma. And then we heard from Jill who lives in the same town where James McConnell was born. Uh, and she gently corrects our pronunciation of the town name. I think I said Oakmulgi. It's apparently Oakmulgee with a hard G. Mm. Uh, she said she cringed, but uh, a lot of other very nice things about the podcast. Uh, but we also heard from Jim, who says, Hi, guys. Since discovering your podcast about a year ago, I've not only become a devout listener, but I've devoured your whole back catalog, mostly in the gym, the shower, and sometimes pretending to work. I typically try and then give up on several new podcasts per month, and I've found no other podcasts like Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Invention. that combines scientific and philosophical inquiry with history and pop culture with an entertaining and comedic vibe. I especially love the science fiction tie-ins. Based on his references, I suspect Robert and I were probably watching reruns of The Twilight Zone, Late Night on UHF and later Cable with a bowl of cereal simultaneously in different cities throughout the 70s and early 80s. Uh, Yeah, that would would be, he he was maybe a little bit ahead of me, but,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, but very much on the same path.
0: Anyway, I wanted to write to you with some additional information regarding your recent devourer of memories episode, as you discuss, James McConnell and the unfortunate attack on him by the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. I was literally on the edge of my seat, expecting you to mention another of the Unabomber 's serendipitous brushes with history, one that may have originally led him down his path of violent rebellion against academia, psychology, and technology, uh, as has been documented, and then uh, he links to an article in the Atlantic. While a student at Harvard, Ted Kaczynski was himself a victim of a series of brutal, cruel, and unethical psychological experiments conducted by Henry A. Murray mm. on a group of 22 undergraduates without their consent or knowledge. Murray's experiments used, in his own words, uh, quote, vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks to study how people react under stress. In one particularly vile experiment, Murray asked students to write about their biggest fear or secret, assuring the students that their essays would be confidential only to read them out in front of the entire class. Uh, Kaczynski was one of the students thus humiliated. While no one can defend uh, Kaczynski's use of violence, it seems plausible that this experience at Harvard, in addition to the issues you highlighted in your podcast, contributed to his selection of a prominent behaviorist like James McConnell as a victim. Hmm. Anyway, that's it for now. Love the show and keep dropping those Twilight Zone references.
1: Oh, excellent. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll, we'll be back with more uh Twilight Zone related episodes uh, when October 2020 comes around, totally. Maybe we'll do only political Twilight Zone episodes. Oh no, episode. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh no, for October 2020. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's going to be
0: a rough time. But
1: but, but anyway, uh, back to Jim's main point here. Yeah, I I, uh, I was not familiar with with that uh, aspect of uh, Kaczynski's Kaczynski's background, um, but uh, but that's that's worth thinking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh and again just to to echo what uh Jim's saying here, obviously stuff like that, you know, doesn't excuse resorting to murder or anything right. like that. But yeah, it does make you wonder about, you know, what kinds of stuff contributed to his mind state. Yeah. All right,
1: uh, we heard from some folks on our episode, Psychology of Architecture, and uh, this one comes to us uh, from Jonas. Greetings. I really enjoyed your episode on architecture. I work in the trades and come in contact with a lot of different buildings and architecture styles. One thing I have noticed is the underlying feeling toward placement of various parts of buildings. For example, doors and windows are never placed close together nor close to the corner of a room or building, and doing so somehow feels looks wrong. This goes for many other things light fixtures off center in a ceiling, a desk placed strangely in an office, a certain amount of wall between the door and ceiling, etc. It is as though humans have a very strong subconscious preference for certain symmetries and ratios in their environment. This psychology seems to play out at both the micro and macro level, and things that do not abide uh, this can result in cursed architecture. Many thanks for the excellent podcast, Jonas. P.S. After listening to the squirrel episodes, I have decided to include them in my next D&D campaign. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I I certainly love that. I mean, so many directions you could go with that. You could basically take cranial rats and Mm -hmm. do cranial squirrels instead.
0: What are cranial rats?
1: Cranial rats are rats used by the illithid mind flayers. Uh And so like one of these rats has the intellect and psychic ability of a normal rat, which of course is, you know, rat-like intelligence and no psychic ability. Mm -hmm. But two, they have the combined intellect of of Ah, the rats. And so you get a big pile of them, a big horde of them, and they have you know considerable intellect and considerable psionic power. So they're pretty fun, pretty fun
0: monster. How many cranial rats equal a demogorgon in intelligence?
1: Oh, I would, I would have to do the math on that, okay. but um, it would take a lot.
0: All right. This next message, also about uh, psychology of architecture, comes from Brees. Breece says, "Hello, mates. I'm a massive fan. First of all, listening to the episode on psychology of architecture, just uh, thought of a personal example. My wife and I first lived in a black and white ultra modern home, a home where a speck of dirt on the ground was almost blinding. <laughs> we found ourselves vacuuming and mopping daily. For our second home, we moved into an older house, mostly timber. I immediately noticed we stopped cleaning as often, mostly because the house simply did." Didn't look as dirty. Uh, this gave us more time to relax and spend with the family, huh. uh, Brees. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's like they say, you know they say, don't get a black couch, right? Yeah. You'll see all of the stuff collecting on it. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, a white couch, I guess. Right. Oh yeah. Maybe. I think you want you want like a textured gray or something. It makes it nice for all the dirt to just hide in there, and you don't yeah. need to worry about it. <laughs>
1: or in my own experience, from a house I lived in uh, growing up, uh, don't have wall to wall white carpeting in a bathroom.
0: Oh, yeah. no. Didn't yeah. we talk about carpeted bathrooms? I think a,
1: this probably has come up. Anytime bad <laughs> carpeting choices come up, I have to share this because it was wall-to-wall and like wall-to-toilet um, <laughs> white carpet <laughs> in a bathroom. It was it was awful. It was also a rental. Wow. All right. So we mentioned Twilight Zone earlier. That mm-hmm. had to do with our Anthology of Horror episodes. We've sure. done three of them now, one the previous year in 2018, and then two Uh, parts uh, two and three in 2019. Mm -hmm. So uh, this one, here's one in particular, though. This comes to us from Kelsey. Kelsey writes, I'm late to this party, but I just now listened to the horror anthology episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I foolishly had skipped them, uh, skipped over them earlier in the month in favor of topics more familiar to me.
0: Very foolish.
1: (laughs) And I had a thought about your questions of the elf ears on the large-headed evolved human.
0: Oh, yeah. We were asking what Could uh, what could actually drive the evolution of elf-shaped ears?
1: Right, because in this, uh, it's the sixth finger is the title of the Outer Limits episode in in question, and uh, the individual has had his evolution uh, advanced by some uh, sci-fi machinery, Mm -hmm. so he develops a sixth finger on each hand. Uh, you know, I, I guess for improved typing, mm-hmm. uh, gets an enormous swollen brain, which uh, is supposed to be there because he has enhanced brain power and <sighs> like psychic abilities. Uh-huh. But then he also has elven ears, and, which we kind of dismissed as being you know purely aesthetic, right. uh, essentially to create an elven, maybe Vulcan look, right? Uh, anyway, uh, Kelsey has thoughts on this. Quote, typically in animals, large ears are used for cooling the body in hot environments. Hmm. Environment doesn't seem to be a factor here, unless this evolved human also presaged global warming in its predetermined path of refinement. But perhaps the issue is the oversized brain. Pumping so much blood upwards would be quite taxing and thus cause an elevated heart rate, which in turn would elevate body temperature. No good for optimal brain function. Also, the enlarged cranium would suffer from the issues associated with mass and surface area not increasing at the same rate, causing heat to be more and more difficult to disperse from the body. Good point. Thus, the elfin ears provide the extra surface area needed for optimal cooling in the human of the future. Yes, I'm aware that all of this is nonsense, but it was amusing to pseudoscience my way through that. Uh, on a more general note, just wanted to say that I'm a new listener to Stuff to Blow Your Mind by way of invention, hmm. and I really enjoy both podcasts. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the thoughtful and sensitive way you approach all of your subjects. Kind regards, Kelsey. Uh, no, I love that. This, I mean this, uh, this exercise is the same exercise we employ a lot of times when thinking about – uh, generally, you know, uh, fantastic and mythical and science fiction creatures from uh-huh. uh, cinema and books and so forth. So, um, so yeah, I love that interpretation. Um, and it does also make me want to do – we've never really done an episode on ears before. That could be hmm. quite interesting. Just talk about like how hearing – Works how uh, you know biological hearing uh, you know works itself, but then also get into the various forms of ear and even the human ear. Why does it look like that? Why why do we have this strange shape? What's the lobe for? What does that accomplish? And then why does ear uh, why why do we have ear hair? Uh, like all of these are questions. Many of them have answers. Uh, it would be exactly the kind of thing that would uh, make sense to discuss here on the show.
0: We have ear hair because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And it, well, it depends, too, what, which, which ear hair are you talking about? The inner ear hair or the hair growing on, like, the lobes uh, itself? The, like, pokes out of the ears, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, I, it's got to be sexual signaling <laughs> to, to attract mates, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one theory. All right. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more.
1: All right, we're back, and uh, and and Joe, is it is it just because we're just we're
0: recording this the week before Christmas? But do I hear holiday music? Oh, you do. We got so much email about our Christmas music episode. People just want to talk about it. I guess the bells are ringing, the the children are singing, and uh, people are sending email. So this first one comes to us from Cecile. Uh, Cecile says, "Good day, Robert and Joe. This is Cecile from Manila, the Philippines." Ah. Here in our country, the Christmas songs start playing and Christmas decorations start appearing as soon as the first – B-E-R month arrives, which is September. Whoa. No one knows when and how this tradition started, though Searching Online brought up this article with some good insight uh, and she links to an NPR article called Love the Holidays? The Philippines Celebrates Four Months of Christmas. (laughs) Wow. Uh, we have our own Christmas earworm in the song Christmas in Our Hearts by local artist Jose Marie Chan. Imagine hearing a song played incessantly, if not in your own house, from a neighbor's house in malls, restaurants, and even public transportation for around four months, as well as being a karaoke uh, staple at Christmas parties. Here's the singer serenading mall goers last year, and then another link here. Uh, luckily, I was able to convince my father to put up Christmas lights and play Christmas songs in our house only at the start of of December. Wishing you a, I apologize, I'm going to try to say this, Malagayang Pasco at Manigong Bagong Taun, or Taun. Uh, Merry Christmas and a prosperous new year, Cecile. Huh. Well, that is interesting. It it does make me wonder, does
1: that mean there's no Halloween in the Philippines? I don't know. Huh. Uh, I I need a... I mean, Halloween is obviously not worldwide. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I, I know it's... You know, obviously, it's celebrated to different extents in different parts of the world, and mm-hmm. I, I seem to recall that um, in, in Japanese culture, Halloween has been embraced to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've I've never thought about uh, to what extent it's uh, practiced in the Philippines. I need a, I, I have uh, friends of Philippine descent. I need to ask them. Huh. Still, I would on the surface, I would agree that four months of Christmas does sound like a little much. Like I say, I'm trying to I'm trying to lean into the holidays this year, but. That's I don't know if I can lean in that far.
0: You know, every culture has their own. It's like you know, some cultures are into intimophagy and other people, uh, other cultures are not. You just got to get used to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, I'm mean, either way. I'm excited to hear more about uh, you know the varieties of uh, of holiday experience around the world. All right, here's another uh, Christmas music. A bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Sarah. Dear Robert and Joe, first of all, this is one of my favorite podcasts, so thanks for making it. I just finished listening to your latest episode, and I thought there was an important perspective which was missing in the discussion. As a practicing Jew, being inundated with Christmas music serves to make me really feel my otherness at this time of year. I and many of my friends find going to such places to be both unpleasant and depressing. And the few stores which throw in a token Hanukkah song or two earn both my undying loyalty and my dollars. (laughs) Not everyone celebrates Christmas, and I have often wondered uh, at the blinders of marketers who think that all shoppers can be wooed this way, especially places like grocery stores, which are patronized by folks who are looking for normal fare rather than presents. Thanks again for your great show. Regards, Sarah. Uh, yeah, I think this is a, this is an excellent point to make, um, one that I at least I, – I did try to touch on this
0: a little bit. Uh, uh, I thought it came up a little bit because we talked about the idea of, like again, not comparing like – annoying Christmas music to actual torture in a a significant way. But like one of the things we talked about was like uh, when detainees are blasted with music Mm -hmm. to kind of like break them for interrogation, it often intentionally is like culturally unfamiliar music. right? And so what could be geographically culturally unfamiliar could also just be like in terms of subculture or religious culture unfamiliar, you know, the the music of the other culture.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, But I also, I will admit that in discussing that particular episode uh, especially, uh, I, I did get autobiographical a lot. and I guess I was, I was considering sort of my own stare down with Christmas <laughs> to a certain extent, yeah. which, you know, for me, it's like Christmas is kind of like this um, – it's like this. Uh, uh, it's what is the the big uh, tractor trailer rig from Maximum Overdrive with the with the go- Green Goblin on the front? I
0: don't know if it had a name, but it was a, it was a Goblin. Like that's Christmas.
1: Just okay. put a Christmas hat on it, and it's sure. coming at you, and then you have to you know, react and figure out how you're going to to take it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was probably I, I probably did lean a bit into just thinking about my own relationship with the holiday, uh, with the various uh, you know biases that are going to be present to that. Yeah. Uh, but it is it is essential to, to realize yeah not everybody has the same uh, uh, you know cultural experience of the holidays or certainly of Christmas and uh, and yeah when you think of of the marketing uh, techniques used by something like a, something like a grocery store mm. it does get get kind of weird right I mean it's like people are there just they, they want to buy bread they want to buy rice they want to b- buy vegetables uh-huh. and they have to listen to jingle bells the whole time
0: I will say ever since we did this episode, I have actually noticed even more than usual when when, and which stores are playing Christmas music. And, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that it happens in grocery stores and stuff. I would yeah. expect it to be more common in stores where you might reasonably be expected to be buying something like Christmas gifts. It's strange to go into Kroger or Publix or whatever and, and hear the Christmas music playing. But, yeah, I guess that's where we're at. Uh, But anyway, yeah, uh, very important perspective, Sarah, and thank you so much for sharing. All right, this message comes from Michelle. Michelle says, Dear Robert and Joe, I really enjoyed the recent episode on the love-hate relationship with Christmas music. I am an amateur classical bassist, and I have been playing in school or community orchestras for over 30 years. This means subjectively I believe I have played at least parts of The Nutcracker approximately 18 million times. Uh, I'm I'm sure the actual number is only in the hundreds, but it feels like much, much more. I'd say (laughs) the hundreds is a lot. I find that my tolerance for this music depends largely on the context. I enjoy playing it. I love sitting in, uh, in a ballet with a live orchestra hearing it, but listening to it on commercials or on the radio makes me envision swatting the sugar plum fairy with a rolled up newspaper. <laughs> to me, the greatest Christmas music offense on commercials is not playing the whole song or at least whole verses so that I can mentally finish it and get it out of my head. There's currently a car commercial that plays the same two measures of a song over and over Without finishing the phrase, it causes physical discomfort and anxiety, and I have to turn the channel or mute the TV. I also wanted to thank you for justifying my squirrel phobia. There <laughs> used to be a squirrel near – no, we're not trying to justify phobia. I hope we didn't do – okay. Um, we, we
1: we seek to justify a a healthy respect yes. and, um, and maybe to a certain extent fear of – Close contact with the squirrel.
0: The fe- fear that is more like awe. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. The consideration of the squirrel as indeed a wild creature. The way you would react to a sandworm from Dune. Yeah. Uh, uh, Michelle goes on, uh, there used to be a squirrel near my house that would come up to the window and torment my indoor cat or would chase me when I walked to my car wow. and would dive bomb neighbors from trees. Wow. Uh, I'm glad I wasn't the only one seeing their true evil nature. Now, again, they're not evil. They're just animals, but they uh, don't, you know— don't underestimate them.
1: That squirrel sound. That sounds excessive, though, yeah, even worse than what we were looking at. Yeah. Like perhaps that's a squirrel that somebody was feeding, uh, and <laughs> right, yeah. uh, you know that because this is one of the dangers of feeding any wild animal is that it changes its. It's like natural inborn association of human beings yeah. and human habitats and so forth. It begins to associate them with food, and then it might be inclined to, to violate the, the sort of uh, predetermined safe space between you and itself. Uh, so I might, you know, just shooting from the hip here, but I wonder if that was a squirrel that had been uh, mm. essentially um, mistreated through yeah. uh, feeding. That's a good point.
0: Uh, Yeah. uh, So anyway. Just a
1: a good reminder for everyone out there. Do not feed wild animals like that. Uh, I mean – I mean you might not be
0: able to stop them from getting into your mealworms or whatever.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean well feeding – it's one thing if the squirrel is eating from your bird feeder. Right. If the squirrel is eating from your hand, then things have gone too far.
0: Michelle goes on, going back even further, I wanted to let you know how perfectly the timing of your January episode on creating the world's most unpleasant room fit into my (laughs) life. It was exactly the episode I needed at a very stressful time. I was listening to that episode along with several others. uh, It was a long few days while trying to make my house as completely perfect as possible for my first social worker visit for my adoption home study.
1: Oh, Oh, I know from experience that that can be very stressful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It made me realize how ridiculous I was being in my cleaning frenzy. Your show has been a saving grace when I get too much in my own head with all the ups and downs that go along with the adoption process as I wait for a match. Thank you so much. Keep the great episodes coming, Michelle.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, thanks for writing in and uh, best of luck with your adoption journey. Absolutely. Oh,
0: wait, no, I forgot. Michelle also has a PS. Oh, let's have it. Uh, I've had simply having a wonderful Christmas time stuck in my head all (laughs) evening. Just that one line. Don't actually know the rest of the song, I'm off to listen to any other song to try to get that particular worm out of my ear. Well, best of luck with that, too. I hope it worked out. Yeah, that's your favorite, right? That song? That is the worst of all time. In addition to the cultural uh, chauvinism of, of Christmas music, sometimes there is some geographical Christmas chauvinism as well Oh yeah, uh, that was mentioned by several listeners. Like, we had several uh, people from, like, Australia and New Zealand get in touch with us about Christmas music, about the fact that uh, lots of Christmas music mentions snow. It's all about wintertime and stuff. But if you're in Australia, Christmas is in the middle of the summer because the seasons are in. The Southern Hemisphere.
1: That's right, we heard from uh, Anna about this. She writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. Recently listened to your episode about Christmas music. You asked for emails from people from other countries and people who are subjected to Christmas music. I fit into both of these categories. I live in Australia and I work in a supermarket. Mm. The thing about an Australian Christmas is it is very hot. Right now we are in the middle of a terrible drought and there are catastrophic fire conditions. Brush fires have devastated different parts of the country over the past few weeks. The annoying thing is retail stores will still play songs like Winter Wonderland or Let It Snow. These seem highly inappropriate but it is just all part of the tradition. In response to this there uh, there are some Aussie Christmas songs. Most of them are really annoying Aussie (laughs) versions of Christmas carols. But there are a few exceptions. One of my favorite is How to Make Gravy by Paul Kelly. Okay. (laughs) This is a song written as a man who is in jail at Christmas time. He is the one who usually makes the gravy. He is calling his brother uh, to get advice on how to make it. What he is really calling about is to say how much he will miss his family, and that he is sorry.
0: Oh, uh, uh, well, that makes me think of one of my favorite Christmas songs, actually, "Christmas in Prison" by John Prine. It's oh, beautiful! Yeah? Oh, I
1: remember uh, Phil Oaks had one called "They Don't Have Christmas in Kentucky." Ah. It was about uh, uh, you know impoverished uh, conditions and, and whatnot. Um, you know, a good uh, like a good sad Christmas song <laughs> goes mm-hmm. a long way, doesn't it? Um, th- anyway, Anna continues. Another Christmas song I like is by an artist called Darren Hanlon. He has a song called The Loaf. This is about a family preparing for a Christmas. The eldest boy has just been dumped. He spends time crying, and his family makes fun of him, saying tears will never bring her back. Ooh, that's cold. Yeah. Uh, A loaf of bread has been put in the oven. During the night, the boy creeps in and throws all his love letters into the oven so they will all burn up. In the morning, the loaf is huge. But when they pierce it with a knife, all his words explode out and the family is killed by the exploding bread. What? Now, that is a song that you will never hear in any retail setting. It is really about the power of words. Thanks and Merry Xmas, Anna. Uh,
0: I've never heard The Loaf, but I got to look that up right now. That is so good. Yeah.
1: How long before that becomes a standard? Hopefully soon.
0: In Googling it, all I'm getting is Meatloaf singing Christmas them songs. <laughs>
1: Ooh, not quite the same thing. Though I though it depends. Um, did Jim work on those uh, those songs? Jim Steinman? Yeah. No,
0: they're not Jim. I mean, they're Christmas songs. Well, oh, I'm, you mean like were they Jim Steinman originals? Yeah. Now, that I would that listen was, to. Yeah, that
1: I'd be into. <laughs> it have that kind of like uh, you know the sort of gothic uh, sleazy biker vampire feel that uh, a proper um, uh, a song from that collaboration
0: should have. Sorry, I'm trying to think of a good Jim Steinman type song title. It'd be something like "Baby, It's Not Christmas Yet," parentheses, but it's the New Year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes you think. Yeah, I, I like it. I
1: would be I would be into that. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close up the bag. There, uh, we're going to send uh, Carney back on his uh, his 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 boxing way, and uh, we will. Uh, Yeah, we'll close out the episode here. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind... Well, you can go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That'll get you where you, you need to go. But you can find the podcast anywhere you get your podcast. wherever that happens to be. Uh, just make sure that you subscribe. Uh, make sure that you rate and review. These are great ways to help out the show. Let's see other things. There is a merch store. Oh, We've got some new designs coming up. There's the, the recent uh, Monster Map uh, t-shirt design. And I believe we have a... Psychedelic mushroom-inspired logo design coming out soon. Maybe by the time you hear this, it will be out. It's like the Stuff to Blow Your Mind glyph, but in uh, Prehistoric Fungus. Yeah, they sent us a preliminary illustration. I said, it looks good, but could we make it look more like a blacklight poster? And, uh, and, and I think that, that really brought it in the right direction. Uh, so, you know, check that out I'll, and see what I'm talking about. I can only describe the visuals so, so well. Uh, other shows you can check out, uh, there is The Second Oil Age, a little sci-fi uh, horror thing that I worked on. That one is uh, out in its entirety now, so you can just binge the whole thing. Invention, our other podcast that Joe and I do together, uh, we finished the first year of Invention episodes, and you can find them all at inventionpod.com or wherever you get your your podcasts uh, rate review subscribe to that as well because if you like what we're doing
0: here well, we think you'll enjoy invention as well huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can uh, email us at contact at stuff to blow your